1: ancient Rome, Muslim Spain and Song-era China have in common? Military might, sophisticated legal systems, or perhaps intellectual brilliance? All of these things played their part in creating the great empires of the past, but the answer is something a little more abstract. In his latest book, the Swedish historian Johan Norberg argues that every truly successful civilization is defined by one key ingredient, openness. Openness to new ideas, new people and new technology. At a time when much of that life-enhancing, economy-expanding openness seems under threat from pandemic panic and populist demagoguery, his optimistic message feels particularly urgent. I sat down with Johan for a delightful Zoom chat from his office in Stockholm. I began with a simple question. What is his new book, Open, all about?
2: In a way, it's a history book because we've had great golden eras in the past of uh flourishing, rapid productivity and scientific technological innovation. And my claim is that that happened because those places and those cultures were relatively speaking open, open to new ideas, open to new technologies, to foreigners, to other religions and to surprises. And that meant for a nice melting pot of new ideas and innovations. So that's one of the denominators but the other one is that they all, all the historical golden eras they ended at some point because there were backlashes against this openness from traditional establishment religious political commercial establishment who didn't want to be challenged by the new uh, and also due to fear and when people become fearful they are not as open as they, they are when when they're in a better state of uh,
1: mind Do you think there is a common thread to, and you mentioned some of the reasons there, but when you looked at those civilizations, is there a common thread to why they all succeeded and then failed? Uh, For instance, could it be that some of them kind of got too successful for their own good and started resting on their laurels a bit?
2: Often it happened because of surprises. uh, Often there were cracks in the old establishment. So someone could come up with a new take on secular science or a new innovation, a new power source that uh, when, when that was allowed to live on for a while, people began to come around and see that, look, this works, so why don't we try this a little bit more? But then the the common uh, end, well, it differs a little bit. There's always a uh, pushback from traditional elite. In the literature, this is called the Codwell's Law. After uh, uh, One uh, science writer who realized that there's always pushback from those who fear a technology that might undermine uh, particular commercial interests or a change in science and technology that undermines traditional elites. So that's always there in every civilization. There's always this conflict between open and closed within every uh, culture. But then it depends on various circumstances on which one comes out on top. And um, oftentimes it's because they begin to get a wider um, sympathy for their reaction against openness. Often in times of a general crisis for the society. Often it could be a threat of a foreign invasion, or it could be an economic depression, or it could be a pandemic. Unfortunately, historically, that's also the case. Uh, Those things create fear, and it also creates the sense among people that they live in more of a zero-sum game. It's not that there are mutual gains within the culture and with other cultures, and then you want to protect what's your own uh, rather than extend um, trade and exchange with others.
1: And it's not, uh, from my reading of it, it's not simply openness, but also... The ability to assimilate other ideas into what you might call a dominant culture. I mean, you refer to the Romans, for example. They would make anyone, whatever their ethnicity or tribe, could become a Roman.
2: Yeah. Montesquieu once explained why the Roman Empire was the most successful and the longest lasting of them all. And he said it's because they gave up. Their own ideas the moment they find something better, a new way of fighting or defending themselves or making sure that safe water ended up in the right place or just to produce wine. Uh, they immediately borrowed the best ideas and technologies from other places, and, and then thereby they became more successful. And as they conquered, I mean, they weren't sort of any bleeding heart liberals. Uh, they were vicious warlords. But the moment they conquered populations, they tried to integrate them into society and turn them from potential threats into assets and create a wider pool of talent, skills, and ideas from which to pick. So uh, emperors like uh, Claudius did their most to make sure that even the conquered could uh, go into not just business, but also administration, even into the Senate. And oftentimes emperors came from the periphery of, of the empire. And that helped them to sustain themselves much longer than if they had a very, very narrow pool of talent and energy.
1: Yeah, I'm just going back to the sort of scope of the book is, is much broader than some books that we see about kind of human progress that perhaps imply there's a kind of magical Western formula to progress. I mean, you're very
2: much the view that this is something that is global and goes back far further. Yeah, I used to think it was something particularly European about it, because like everybody else, I started to read history in reverse. I started with the fact that the, the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution happened here. So why? And then it's easier to find the, the clues and the sort of the stepping stones in history, the, the Renaissance, the city-states, Magna Carta. And then you go back to the Greeks and we have this nice... Uh, trajectory. But it's based on two mistakes, I think. Uh, the the mistake I did when I wrote history in that fashion was that I forgot 1,000 years of European history when basically nothing uh, happened. And it, we even went to reverse when it came to wealth and health and, and scientific knowledge. The other thing is that during those 1,000 years, there were other cultures and other regions that did much, much better. Uh, the, the Muslim world, um, Song China was far ahead of us, Song China 1,000 years ago. They used the, uh, the compass, the printing press, and uh, they fought with gunpowder and they navigated with a Nautical Compass, and they printed books with a printing press. And they are the three great inventions that Karl Marx, writing in the 1860s, claimed ushered in the era of the capitalist bourgeoisie in Europe. So that tells you something. It tells you that those eras of rapid innovation and change, they've taken place in so many other places and other continents other religions it happened in um, pagan and muslim and confucian and buddhist cultures as well and then it's very difficult to say that this is a peculiarly uh, european construct the one thing that made europe different was that uh, we were open for a longer period of time so the process became self self self-reinforcing and self-sustaining and that was partly by accident
1: yeah that was what i was going to ask is that the European, the Western European world has undergone as big a set of shocks in the last couple of centuries, particularly in the 20th century, yet pretty much survived that Western kind of capitalist model. I mean, do you, what do you put that down to where other kind of civilizations felt? Is it the fact that it's spread over such so, so many countries in both hemispheres that have allowed these ideas, you know, the rule of law and economic liberalism to carry on despite massive global conflicts? I
2: think so. Europe has always been more decentralised, uh, for good and ill. Because uh, one of the things that happen when you have 1,000 political entities uh, 500 years ago, uh, different city states and independence fiefdoms and universities and uh, churches, is that you make war on on everybody else constantly as well. But the good thing, as as David Hume, the Enlightenment philosopher, pointed out was that this situation in Europe, when we were this uh, decentralized, a system of independent states like this and entities, was that Europe became in a way a uh, miniature Greece, what Greece was at the birth of science and philosophy. It was, there were so many different entities that could compete And it meant that one idea that was seen as blasphemous and dangerous in one place could often survive on the other side of the border. And this meant that it was, I mean, the European elites, they fought just as hard as the Chinese elites and the Muslim elites to to destroy independent thought and to destroy new technologies that would threaten their position. But they were just bad at it. They failed. The European rulers failed. Because um, when John Locke was thrown out of, of uh, was persecuted in, in England, he could flee to Amsterdam. Hobbes could go to Paris. Uh, Descartes could go to, from Paris to Amsterdam. And uh, Hugo Grotius could go from Amsterdam to Paris, the opposite direction, but for the same reason. Because it was so difficult to coordinate oppression between all those rivaling Uh, states, so that independent thought could always survive somewhere. And that has meant that there has been safety valves, uh, hundreds of safety valves throughout the European continent, because no single ruler could conquer them all. When the Chinese emperor said that, let's stop trading with foreigners, let's stop writing encyclopedias on secular science, that was the end of it, because one decision applied to a whole continent. Well, the European rulers did the same thing. They tried to ban trade and ban encyclopedias, but then the independent minded the eccentrics and the the crazy ones could always go somewhere else, so those ideas could survive somewhere in europe
1: yeah I mean, when you were doing your search for your um, for this book, did you come across any societies where you thought, "hmm, actually, these were quite closed societies, and yet they were prosperous despite that"? I mean, you mentioned China, though, I think maybe Japan as well, quite isolated from the rest of the world. And is it possible to be successful without being open?
2: It's possible to create some sort of stability, at least. That's what happened in Ming and China and for a long while when when Japan was closed as well, you create some sense of stability. Within that stability, you block lots of of innovation because only what uh, the rulers are in in favor of can can succeed. But there were always cracks. It's interesting to see in China during the last 500 years. And it has been on the macro level 500 years of stagnation because they didn't allow openness and, and innovation. And yet you can always see that independent Chinese farmers were continuously trying to come up with new ways of uh, producing higher yielding crops and crop rotation and, and new agricultural methods. Always stomped out and rulers tried to block it, but there's something about the human spirit that's difficult to squash entirely. I could add that it is obviously always possible for more closed-minded societies to borrow ideas from more open society and therefore imitate them for a while. I mean, the Soviet Union was quite successful in uh, imitating the Industrial Revolution for a while by forcing people to move from the countryside into factories and thereby increasing productivity for a while. And China has uh, done the same thing Albeit a little bit in a more open uh, way than the Soviet Union, but sooner or later you always see that those societies push against a certain limit and and fail because they cannot make it onto the next level where productivity innovations has got to come from the strange things that the um, rulers hadn't foreseen and that the rulers might not like because it might undermine their power, and it's it's incredibly difficult to move forward to the next.
1: stage. Yeah, I mean, just drawing on what you have said there, and the Soviet Union, I think, is a great example of how tech on its own is not enough to deliver prosperity. You need this ecosystem in which that can operate. So is it fair to say that the, kind of, the value of tech is in how open it
2: makes our societies? Yes, that's an incredibly important point because um, if you buy the old idea that all the great development innovation comes from sort of one crazy innovator, then he might be in the Politburo. Or the Politburo might sort of bury him in treasure if he comes up with a great idea. But that's not really where it comes from. It comes from this ecosystem of lots of independent-minded people, millions of them, in all spheres of society. In uh, the scientific exploration, in technological tinkering, in finance, in independent sources of wealth that could... Uh, look at these things and, and and sort of recognize that here comes something interesting along. I think that the history of the personal computer in uh, the Soviet Union is very interesting. And I write about this in the book. They, The Soviet Union was quite successful when it came to sort of the, the huge traditional computers that you use for launching missiles, for example. But they just didn't make it onto the next stage. And why was that? Not for a lack of knowledge and education they had great programmers and they had great spies who knew exactly what was going on in the west but they just didn't understand why what's the point why would anybody want to use a a computer in their home and interestingly that's exactly what most western uh, thinkers and even computer businesses said about it as well but the difference was that in in the US, we had this ecosystem of independent power uh, sources. Uh, So we could have, for example, crazy guys in the garage, and they could find one angel investor, even though everybody else thought that this was worthless. And they could find a consumer market where that no one could have planned for or expected. It could be a rich man wanting a computer as a status symbol. It could be uh, hobbyists and hackers who who wanted to look into this it could be um, uh, gamers who wanted to use this for trivial (laughs) reasons that didn't fit in a five-year plan which is mostly about important stuff it's about more steel and wheat it's not about entertainment and when you don't have that ecosystem that opens up for independent ideas to find other eccentrics that's when you um, do not manage to reach the next level. Yeah, I mean, we've managed to get this far through the podcast without
1: mentioning the kind of massive elephant in the room uh, of this year. I mean, how you you have the kind of beauty of taking a long view of history, I suppose. So how do you view 2020's events in terms of uh, one of these backlashes against openness that you talked about?
2: Well... uh... Actually, I, I finished the first version of the book before the pandemic, and one of the conclusions is that pandemics are bad for openness. <laughs> I <laughs> think we can all agree. Because, yeah. <laughs> and now, and you know, uh, it's always an author's dream to write something that seems relevant in the light of events, unless you happen to be writing about the end of the open civilization, of course. Um, so, so I uh, managed to. Um, to update the book in the light of of some of of these events. And what usually happens historically is that people become afraid of the rest of the world and you see a collapse in trade and migration and the very things that, make for a good dynamic society. Uh, Before the pandemic, the World Bank had calculated that up to 90% of the cost of disease does not come from cases and deaths and treatment and ensuing lack of production. It comes from aversion behavior, the fact that we stay away from each other. We stay away from places of commerce and trade and production and airports, uh, ports, and and so on. And I think that that has now been, that seems like a low estimate in, in in the light of uh, events. So what can we say uh, now about this? Well, we've definitely seen that we there was a backlash against um, trade, against mobility. Uh, suddenly we ended up, uh, up in some sort of uto- combined utopia of uh, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump and Greta Thunberg. Uh, no one is flying, no one is moving, uh, no migrants, no, no trade. And it's like a trailer for, uh, for an anti-globalization world. And uh, it, at least it doesn't make me uh, tempted to, to see the full motion, <laughs> motion picture. Uh, I yeah. don't see why anybody would want to make something like this permanent. Yeah, it does strike me that I think when people
1: realize what the costs of the kind of measures, I mean, over here we have Extinction Rebellion who want to decarbonize the entire economy in five years. And I think when people realize what the costs of that are, they might look a little bit askance. I
2: mean, do you remain, it's fair to say your are congenitally optimistic. Can I just say about the, the extinction rebellion, rebellion? You can, yeah. Uh, can I just add that if, because we now hear that, look, we can do it. They said it was impossible to stop the world and stop people from uh, flying, but we could do it in a short time. And look, it 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 works. No, it doesn't work. We <laughs> attempt, We tried to do this for a couple of months and the result is already a global depression, some between 100 to 300 million people around the world are being thrown into extreme poverty. This does not work. If this was a permanent state of affairs, it would be a human tragedy. And what did this buy us in terms of decarbonization of the planet? Well, the latest projection from the International Energy Agency says that we are looking at a reduction of carbon dioxide by around 8% by the end of this year. 8%! That's nothing. just to reach the Paris Climate Accords in 2030, we would need a pandemic like this once a year for the next decade. (laughs) So we would need to to see much, much more human misery to uh, manage to decarbonize by doing less in the future. So I think this has been the, the, the greatest evidence so far that what we need is not to do fewer things, but to do more things with less, with greener technologies. And then what we need is wealth, massive wealth, to invest in that kind of future. Any kind of de-globalization, de-industrialization would be a human and a, a poverty nightmare.
1: And also, I think, you know, the solutions to the pandemic are a testament to how important globalization is. If you look at the way that scientists are collaborating with each other from different countries, people go on about trade having stopped. But I mean, I don't know about what it's like in Sweden, but it doesn't feel like that here in England. I mean, supermarkets are full. Everyone's out shopping. I mean, it hasn't happened. The apocalypse has not happened in the way that anti-globalizers would like to
2: think. I think that's the amazing thing. Everybody talked about, especially when this pandemic started, that over, we're so vulnerable now because we're dependent on these global supply chains. Well, what happened? The world almost shut down. Half the world's population uh, was under curfew. Um, we, we saw lockdowns everywhere. And yet we have food on our shelves. We even have, uh, we have medical supplies. We have protective equipment, even though demand for it increased 50-fold. We, we even have toilet paper, even though we were almost running out of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that tells you something about how resilient business is, how rapidly they manage to find new supplies and reroute um, uh, trade managed to produce what was needed even though the workforce didn't even show up. It tells you that globalization is incredibly resilient. And I just looked at the evaluation from McKinsey about the supply chains. And they point out that even in areas like um, drugs and medical equipment, they are incredibly resilient. There are so many alternative suppliers. So they managed to fix this they managed to arrange this there's only one thing that they haven't been able to deal with and that is governments trying to shut down supply chains and um, implementing export bans on for example protective equipments and surgical masks and and things like that so the governments who told us that free trade doesn't work they are the ones the only threat to free trade and, and to those supply chains because they shut it down and even in Examples like Germany and and France began to steal protective equipment heading to uh, southern Europe, for example, because they thought that they needed it themselves. So it's just like a traditional Greek tragedy, because they feared a particular destiny. They brought about the particular awful events that ushered in this tragedy.
1: Yeah, I think you I mean the elites will always sort of say that resilience, as you mentioned, is the product of stability and one kind of solid basis. But actually if this pandemic's shown anything, it's that resilience is in variety more than anything. If you have a hundred suppliers and ten of them go bust, you've still got ninety left. Whereas if your one supplier or your one government fails I mean, we've seen this in the UK with the way, the way that the health system works. It's all really, really centralised. So if something goes wrong, compare the UK to Germany, the way they've tested and traced. I mean, it's... But the difficulty for people on our side of the argument is that these are quite counterintuitive arguments for a lot of people. I mean, do you think there's a better way for market liberals, classical liberals to express their arguments in a way that is accessible to normal people?
2: Yeah, that... Is the challenge because it always feels like when you're being threatened and you're dependent on something, you want it close to home, right? Because it feels like it's incredibly counterintuitive that you depend on millions of people for uh, medical supplies or even for your cup of coffee. Because, and and I write extensively about that in the book, the problem is that we have a mismatch between our our Stone Age brains and the world those Stone Age brains created. An incredibly complex, wealthy world where we cooperate with strangers whom we don't even know, who um, end up supplying me with this cup of coffee even though they didn't know that they created a cup of coffee. They might have been the ones producing the plastic for the helmet for the foresters who... um, Created the lumber that was needed to um, uh, for carrying then uh, the, the coffee beans from the, the plantation to to somewhere else. There is no way for our brains to really get at that. And in times of crisis, we we still get stuck in this kind of societal fight or flight instinct when we want to find some pick a fight with scapegoats and foreigners because uh, they're dangerous because traditionally a threat to us was probably a predator or a hostile tribe. And then you want to find the enemy and beat them up. Now when now the threat is a virus, or it could be a lack of innovation or something like that. Then it doesn't make sense to beat up strangers, but rather learn from their knowledge about the virus, the potential vaccine that they'll supply us with, or the kind of uh, technical skills that they have that we are dependent on. But it doesn't feel like that right? It feels like we're, we're scared, we want, and we need to build walls. Well, unfortunately, we're stuck with the brains that we have and the instincts that we have, and they will always be with us. Uh, our message is always going to be counterintuitive. So the only message is to teach, to teach ourselves and to teach others and to talk people through economics and to give examples, I think, from history that shows that uh, Yes, for 99.9% of homo sapiens' existence, the economy was probably more or less like a zero-sum game. Because if someone got richer, they probably stole it from you. And that's the magic of the free market. For the first time in world history, we've created a world where you get rich by supplying people with stuff they like. That's an amazing achievement, and that's how you create civilization. But it feels strange, so we have to explain it again and again and again. I mean, part of the problem,
1: I think you've mentioned in your other writing, is that uh, the media loves a bit of drama. So the version of reality we get is just the worst highlights on a constant um, loop. And, w- and one of the things that we in the media love to do is to kind of set up different groups against each other. But I was, I was very struck in the, the book that you talk about how Brexit is a good example, actually, of not it's kind of the opposite of tribalism in a way because pre-existing identities broke down very quickly in, the space, in a very short space of time.
2: Yeah, and I, I think this is my reason to believe that, sure, we are tribalists, uh, without a doubt, we've got this sort of tribal sense uh, within us, and we will always carry that along. But It's dynamic, it's very fluid. It changes constantly, um, depending on particular cues, depending on different new issues that top the the headlines today, or particular cross-cutting cleavages and identities. Uh, So for example, yeah, everybody is now defining themselves according to Brexit. And in fact, uh, the latest poll I saw, uh, 15 percentage points more than even bothered to vote in the referendum. (laughs) and now define themselves according to that. And then you can become depressed and think that, oh, we're nothing but tribalists. But the point is that no Stone Age human being defined himself according to his opinion on on Brexit. So it tells you that we also manage to forget the old supposedly entrenched identity the moment something else comes along. common enemy or a particular issue that tops the day or a um, football championship when you suddenly realize that those people whom I hated, depending on their attitude to Brexit, they actually cheer on the same team uh, as I do. (laughs) So so I'm a little bit uh, more hopeful than some people about this. Uh, These things constantly change. And just because certain demagogues manage to make one identity salient right now, ahead of the next election, doesn't mean that it'll be there forever. Yeah, you know, I
1: was going to ask, has your kind of congenital optimism
2: been tempered at all by the events of the last year? Well, you know, I've always said that I'm a um, qualified optimist, Right. Uh, and, and by that I mean a rational optimist. Meaning a Matt that optimist. As, yeah. Exactly. As long yeah. as people are given freedom to explore new knowledge, experiment with new technologies and business model, and exchange the results with others. We'll see endless progress, and there will be no limits to discoveries and growth. But I'm not necessarily automatically an optimist in uh, thinking that people will always have that freedom. I know for a fact uh, that, that looking at history, that once in a while, that freedom is destroyed and obviously some of the full political forces that we see right now in the west the um, populist nativist right and the radical socialist left they are fighting over who will get to destroy openness the most uh, the quickest Um, so obviously i'm very concerned about that and in the rest of the world there are also forces from radical islamists to china and russia who have recently learned how to play the game and undermine democracies and and openness in other places. And yet, with that being said, I think that what saved openness historically and uh, the the reason why openness survived in Europe was that it was more decentralized than other places. Well, the world is more decentralized than it has ever been. We have more political entities and places that uh, search uh, independently to make themselves successful. And they know that some openness for science, technology and business and trade is a uh, absolutely an, an essential uh, to do that. And no one, someone will ruin it all. And I, I fear that it might happen in, in even in North America and in Europe. But I'm positive that others will pick up um, the torch when that happens because the world is now more open and we're able to communicate more openly thanks to the web than ever before.
1: So I think that's an extremely positive note on which to end. Uh, it's an open world and it's gonna carry on being open. Uh, hopefully 2020 has just been a nasty blip on the road. Uh, Johan, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure and all the best.